Let us now read together what we confess. First, the Canons of Dort, chapter 2, the Articles 3 and 5. You can find that on page 545 and 546 of your Book of Praise. Article 3, this death of the Son of God is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sins, of infinite value and worth, abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. Then Article 5, the universal proclamation of the gospel. The promise of the gospel is that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have eternal life. This promise ought to be announced and proclaimed universally and without discrimination to all peoples and to all men, to whom God in his good pleasure sends the gospel, together with the command to repent and believe. Now let us read from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 11. There we find God's word summarized as follows. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? Because he saves us from all our sins. And because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints, in themselves, or anywhere else, also believe in the only Savior, Jesus? No. Though they boast of him in words, they in fact deny the only Savior, Jesus. For one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept this Savior must find in him all that is necessary for their salvation. And then after the sermon, we will sing together from Psalm 79, Estantis 3, 4, and 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, today, on what is known as Palm Sunday, we come to a new section of the Heidelberg Catechism with the heading, God the Son and our Redemption. To start that section off, Lord's Day 11 first deals with the name Jesus, that is, Savior. Christ came, in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, to save us from all our sins. The remarkable thing is that not everyone wanted such a Savior. As a matter of fact, the vast majority of the people on earth reject him. They do not want him. And that should surprise us. For, think about it. What is there to reject? Christ comes with his free offer of grace. He comes to everyone with a free gift, total forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. That's wonderful, isn't it? Why then the rejection? Why choose Barabbas, the murderer, 
the revolutionary. Why not choose Christ? The choice seems clear, doesn't it? Strange, isn't it, that they chose a man like Barabbas? What is there about the free gift of the Lord Jesus Christ that will make someone choose anybody but Christ? That's what we will consider this afternoon as we listen to the preaching of God's word, as we confess it in Lord's Day 11 about the only Savior, Jesus Christ. And then we will look at three things. First, the necessity of this confession. Secondly, the rejection of this confession. And then finally, the result of this confession. I'll preach to you about the only Savior, Jesus Christ, the necessity, the rejection, and the result of this confession. First, then, the necessity of this confession. It was not until the angel Gabriel told Mary before the birth of the long-awaited Messiah, what his name was going to be. For centuries before his birth, the people of Israel knew not only that salvation would come from the Lord God himself, but also that a Messiah would be born who would deliver them. And the people also knew that he would be of the seed of Abraham, and that he would be a son of David, also that he would be born in the town of Bethlehem, But the people never knew what his name would be. The first one to whom this would be revealed is Mary, the mother of the Messiah. She was told he is to be called Jesus, and he will save people from their sins. That name, Jesus, was not an uncommon name. And there were many others who had that same name. It was a well-known name already in the Old Testament. And many parents chose that name for their children. For the name Jesus is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua. We are familiar with the Old Testament Joshua, the successor of Moses, who led the people of Israel into the Promised Land. He was a hero to the Israelites, and he was held in high esteem. And after the exile, we meet another Joshua, a high priest, who, after the exile, led the people of God from the foreign lands back to the promised land. And both these men could be called saviors in their own right. But when the angel Gabriel tells Mary to name him Jesus, then we know that he more than any other Joshua before or after him, will be true to his name. For he will save in a way that no other man could. He will save the people from their sins. He will restore fallen creation. Through him, all the pain and sorrow in this world will be removed. Now, you would think that the world would welcome such a Savior with open arms. And if not the whole world, then at least the nation Israel. For they were taught to expect such a Savior. Everything in their religious lives pointed to that coming Savior. For example, it was considered a curse for a woman to remain barren 
For if she remained barren, her line would be would discontinue, and the Messiah, through her blood, would no longer be possible. And they expected him not only because of the prophecies, but also because of the ceremonial laws. Everything in the religious life of the Israelite pointed to the coming Messiah. But once he is born, the nation of Israel, nor the world, welcomes him. On the contrary, there is utter rejection. And the culmination of the rejection is seen as Christ appears before Pontius Pilate as judge and before the Israelites. They cry out, crucify him, crucify him. They want nothing to do with his Savior. Why not? Well, why do you think? Well, it has to do with the radical claim that Jesus makes. Do you know what that claim is? And what is so offensive to most people? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ claims that it is necessary for everyone to see him as the only Savior. There is no salvation outside of him. And he makes that claim time and time again. He does not make that claim at only one point in his ministry. No, he does that throughout. There is, for example, the one moment which led to his execution, first of all. And that was the time when the high priest asked him whether he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he said to the high priest, you have said so. But I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. But that statement does not rest on just that one dramatic moment just before his death. No, Christ had made that statement so many times throughout his ministry. From the start, Christ claimed that he would forgive the sins of others. And that was quite a radical statement to make. Think about it. It is not some small thing that he is saying here. It's not just a small claim. If someone cheats you out of a few dollars, then it might be reasonable for you to say, I forgive you. Let's not mention it anymore. But Christ's claim is so much greater than that. He would say that all their sins would be forgiven, all the sins that they had ever committed against God and that they will commit against him and against their fellow men. He said to them, they are done away with. Your sins are no more, they are totally wiped out. Is it any wonder that the Pharisees and the scribes and the people were so annoyed with him? For they realized full well that with such a statement, he made himself out to be God. For only God can make such a claim. There were also other claims that he made. It was the custom of the Jews, for example, to vast for various reasons. And that was an integral part of the Jewish religion. And it had been for hundreds upon hundreds of years. 
And then Christ comes along and says, no one needs to fast while I'm here. Fasting is no longer necessary. Who is he? The Pharisees asked themselves. Who is he that he can just suspend all the rules? And he also stated, for example, that he existed before Abraham. How could this man make such a claim? Is it any wonder that the Jews are upset? Is it any wonder that they want him out of the way? Are they not right in wanting to crucify him? However, if they had known the scriptures, then they would have known what he was talking about. And then they would not have been surprised at these things. Or at least they would have been willing to be taught as his disciples were. Better said, if they had known themselves for the miserable creatures that they were, then they would have realized eventually that he is the Christ. But they were not even open to that. Their hearts were closed. You see, the scriptures are like a mirror in which we see ourselves. Christ is also the mirror in which we see ourselves. For what does Christ do? Christ confronts you with your sins. But at the same time, the Lord Jesus confronts you with the fact that he is not only a man, but that he is God. God come to earth in the flesh. And that is especially where the problem came in. The Pharisees and all proud men cannot and will not accept that Christ is both man and God. The Pharisees and the scribes and all the people of the nation of Israel, indeed the whole world, had to accept that Christ is also the unique Son of God, and that without him they cannot live. Without him there is no life. Outside of him there is no salvation. He saves us from our sins. And he does not just save us from one particular sin. No, he is called Jesus because he saves us, as the Catechism also says, from all our sins. The form for the baptism for infants states the same truth. It says there, when we are baptized into the name of the Son, God the Son promises us that he washes us in his blood from all our sins and unites us with him in his death and resurrection. Thus we are freed from our sins and accounted righteous before God. These words were written on the basis of what the Bible teaches us. And that is the claim that Christ now makes for every child who receives the sign and the seal of the covenant. It is a claim which Christ makes today. And which he has made from the very start. He washes us from all our sins. It's a radical claim. It's a claim rejected by unbelievers. That little word all, as in all our sins, is so hard for man to accept. And it's also hard for you and me, if you think about it. For you see, we do not believe that it is that easy. And that was certainly the case 
It was during Jesus' days. They said, this is just too simple. It's too easy. It's also too radical. The Pharisees hated it, that Christ would come to such an easy solution to man's sin. They say, it is much more complicated. Man makes things much more complicated. We do too. They did not want him to be able to say that anyone would be able to have their sins forgiven without having to do something for it themselves. For look at the way that the Pharisees tried to deal with their own sins. They kept the law to the minutest detail. They vasted. They studied the scriptures. They said long prayers. They kept the Sabbath like no other. They tried to do everything right. They went through great pains to pay for their sins. They were such pious men in their own eyes that they were convinced that they had accumulated much credit with God in heaven. Indeed, they saw God as the banker in heaven who keeps track of the debits and credits of men. And as far as they were concerned, their credit account in heaven was full to the brim. They worked so hard for their salvation. And now, here comes this Jesus of Nazareth. He says to people of whom he knows very little, except that they believe in him, he says to them, your sins are forgiven. He wipes out the debits of those miserable sinners in one fell swoop. Even though, according to the calculations of the Pharisees, these people had a tremendous debt in heaven. It's too easy. How can this man just come along and pretend that such a debt does not even exist? That's not right, they say. And these people have to do something for it, just like we did. It costs something in order to be forgiven our sins. You have to make some kind of payment. And so we come to the second point, the rejection of this confession of Christ as the only Savior. Well, the Pharisees and all those who follow them in their thinking are right about one thing. Something indeed must be done in order to receive such total and radical forgiveness. But they were wrong as to who has to do it. For man himself cannot do it. Only Christ can. He alone can do so without the help of anyone. What does he have to do for it? Well, in order to deal with sin, death is necessary. For you always have to connect sin with death. The Lord told Adam and Eve that as soon as they would eat of the fruit of the tree, that then they would die. That is the only way that sin can be atoned for. And for that reason, the sacrifices had to be made continually in the temple. For God's people also had to connect sin with death. There is no other way to deal with sin than through death. And Christ was prepared to deal with sin in that radical way. Of course, the Pharisees did not see this. 
Their hearts were not receptive to this. They were so busy with their own sense of self-righteousness that they lost sight of the righteousness of God. They were so enthralled with their own lives that they only partly sought their salvation outside of themselves. Are we any different? The sad reality is that it is every man's tendency to be so busy with his own selfish life and with his own righteousness that he has a hard time seeing Christ as the only Savior. But the wonderful thing is, brothers and sisters, that we have been taught the truth. We know better. And so we allow God's work to that we allow God to work in our hearts time and again so that we humble ourselves. At least that's how it should be. It is therefore very sad when the leaders of the church officially teach a watered-down doctrine. For that was the case not only during the time Christ made his claims while he walked on earth, but that was also the case with the Roman Catholic Church. Rome still teaches that salvation can be partly found in man himself. Oh, it is true that he will not deny that Christ is not the Savior of the world. If you talk to a Roman Catholic, they will tell you that that's what they believe. As far as that goes, they came a little bit further than the Pharisees. But in essence, they are not any different. They all teach the doctrine of good works. For what do they say? Well, they say that man has to help God a little bit. And the Roman Catholics believe that man can do this by his own good works, and that he can do this through the saints. They say that salvation is the work of Christ, plus the work of man. Man and God must work together for their salvation. They need each other. And such cooperation between God and man is not only taught by the Roman Catholics, but also by the Arminians. They state that Christ's saving work is dependent on the response of man. According to the Arminians, Christ's death was not a payment for sins. No, according to them, his death was only the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. They state that man failed the condition of the Old Testament, namely to keep the law. But now in the New Testament, a new condition is put into place, namely the condition of faith. Christ's death only made possible for God to lower considerably the thresholds of of his demands on man. Now God gives something to man which he is able to do, namely to believe. And that is why we wrote Article 3 of Chapter 2 of the Canons of Dort, which we also read together. This death of the Son of God is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sins of infinite value and worth, abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. Christ's death, in other words, was not only a fulfillment of the law, 
but it was also a payment for sin. The Lord Jesus said to Thomas in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There isn't a person in the world, no matter how pious he or she may be, who can come to the Father unless he embraces Christ as the only Savior. Peter spoke in a very clear and absolute language when he said to the Sanhedrin in Acts 4, verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Lord Jesus Christ alone can save us from our sins. The Arminian wants some glory for himself. He does not want to give God the glory alone. Note well, however, that the catechism does not say that such people do not believe in the Lord Jesus, but that they do not believe in the only Savior, Jesus. Man also wants some of the glory. Palm Sunday occurred not so long before Golgotha. At that time, the people of Jerusalem welcomed Jesus in a way reserved only for kings. They adored him. They cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! John 12, verse 13. Why did they do so? They did so because they thought that they would be able to share in his glory. They wanted to be able to claim the victory with him. But they had no idea of the radical claim Christ was making. They did not realize that they could share in his victory and his glory only through faith. These people sought an earthly kingdom. They sought to establish it with the sword. And therefore they became quickly disappointed. And so only a short time later, Christ stands in front of that same crowd, but this time they reject him. They put them before a choice. Barabbas or Jesus? Who will it be? But whom do they choose? They choose Barabbas, a murderer and a revolutionary. Barabbas also claims to be a savior. He, his aim was to overthrow the rule of the Roman Empire by force. Barabbas wanted to give the glory to the nation of Israel. He sought to restore the fortunes of men through his own efforts. And Pilate knew that man can only choose one of the two, Jesus or Barabbas. Barabbas also promised salvation. But his salvation was based on the works of men through revolution. And so we too are always put before a choice. We can choose Barabbas or Jesus. But in choosing for Barabbas, we choose for the glory of man and not for the glory of God. But to God alone is the glory. Only he can bring salvation to man. There is no salvation at the hands of men. And so what about you, brothers and sisters? And that includes you, boys and girls. Are you also guilty 
of wanting some of the glory? Do you also seek your salvation partly in yourselves? I ask this question, for that is the nature of all of us. It is my nature as well. We too boast of the fact that we can do something for our own salvation. We too tend to think that we have at least done something to make us acceptable to God. Look at us. Look at what we do. We go to church. We pay for this and we pay for that. Look at how faithful we are. Aren't we good? Brothers, you only do that out of thankfulness, not out of a desire to earn your own salvation, for you can't. In the Catechism and the form for the baptism of infants, we are told that we have nothing to glory in ourselves. This form tells us in the Catechism that by nature we are children of wrath. For that is also what the Scriptures teach us. Wretched man that I am, says Paul in Romans 7. Who will deliver me? And baptism signifies the impurity of our souls so that we detest ourselves and that we humble ourselves before God, our Maker, and that we seek our cleansing and salvation outside of ourselves. We may not reject the claim of Christ, for we have nothing to offer Him. We are bankrupt. There are no exceptions. But there are also consequences of accepting Christ as the only Savior. And so we come to the third point, the result of this confession. The catechism in the form for the baptism also tells us something else. They tell us that we too have a responsibility. Every covenant has two parts, a promise and an obligation. The promise is that we share with Christ in his death and resurrection, and his death and resurrection are closely connected. For Christ's death would have meant nothing at all if he had remained in his grave. Easter Sunday comes after Good Friday. Christ's resurrection comes after his death. And that is the promise for all of us. Christ's death means renewal. But it is a renewal not only of our bodies, for our lives are nothing more than a constant death, but it is especially a renewal of our daily lives, of our hearts, of our minds, time and again. We need to die to our sins and to come alive again. And the Catechism tells us that we must accept this Savior by a true faith, not as a condition for salvation, but as a result of what God has done. It is the fruit of our faith. It is true that Christ has done it all for us, but we also have to respond to that in true faith, and that is God's gift. We must accept that gift and use it. That means in the first place that we must accept the fact that all our sins have been forgiven us through grace alone, without any merit of our own. And so we may not doubt the promise that is given to us at the time of our baptism. But in the second place, we must also detest ourselves, as the form for the Lord's Supper also says. And so let me ask you, do you also hate the sin that clings to you? Do you mourn your sins? 
And then do you flee from your sin with all your might? Such an examination is not a condition of receiving the forgiveness of sins. The Lord knows that we cannot add anything to our salvation. But such an examination must be the result of what Christ has done for you and for me. For it is true that Jesus saves, but at the same time he also renews. For sharing in the resurrection of Christ also means, to quote the form for the baptism of infants once more, and that we are raised with him to walk in newness of life. Christ saves, but he also renews. He restores our body and soul so that we may worship him with all our soul and with all our mind and with all our heart. Christ has done a great thing for each and every one of us. But now he also requires that you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. As Paul says to the Philippians. A Christ, a Christian may never rest on his laurels. No, God puts us to work. Accepting the only Savior, Jesus Christ, is not a passive thing. No, it activates us. It makes us zealous. It makes us joyful to do things for the Lord and for each other. And we have to show that in our lives. Jesus saves. He remembers our misdeeds no more. He is the God of our salvation. And therefore, as we also reminded in the canons of Dort, his fame and glory must be sounded forth from us, not only through our lips, but also through the kinds of lives we live. And in this way, we can show our thanks to him in all our words and works. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, isn't it wonderful to know that your sins have been given through grace alone? Don't you want to talk to everybody that you come into contact about this? First of all, within the household of faith, to your children, your grandchildren, and also to others with whom you come into contact. For there is a great joy in knowing that you do not have to add anything to your salvation. It is through faith that you are saved. And it is through the only Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory. Amen.